Welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where we talk to thought leaders, creatives, authors, and entrepreneurs about how sometimes the best thing to happen to you is the most unexpected. Welcome your host, Antonio Neves. Hey everyone, welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where we talk about the best thing to ever to happen to people that doesn't include the traditional markers of success. That's because sometimes the things that have a major influence on someone's life will never show up on a resume, in a conversation, or on the internet. I'm your host, Antonio Neves, and each week I bring on a new guest who has a powerful story to tell that will motivate, inspire, and help you see life through a new lens. This week's guest is someone I've admired for quite some time, the founder and CEO of Train to Be Clutch, Joshua Metcalf. Joshua is an author of multiple best-selling books, including Chop Wood, Carry Water, Pound the Stone, and most recently, The Future of Leadership. He advises leading brands and top people in sports and coaching on topics like innovation, management, mindset, and grit. This guy speaks all across the globe, delivering those kind of messages that you'll never forget. Now, all of that's great, but what I find even better is that Joshua is just straight up a good dude. So Joshua Metcalf, thanks for making time. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate you having me on the podcast today. You got it. Let's dig straight in. What is the best thing that ever happened to you that doesn't include a traditional marker of success? People, when they talk about the best thing, they think about graduating from high school or college or getting married or buying a a house or getting that big promotion, those traditional markers of success. But what's one of those things that you consider a best thing that not a lot of people would know? Yeah, so there, there, I've had a very untraditional life, and so there's been a, a lot of stuff that's happened. But probably the most key factor that doesn't get talked about very much is the fact that I chose not to write my master's thesis uh, from Duke University. And so, you know, I all I needed to do was write a 55-page paper, and I would have had my master's, and not just from anywhere, but from Duke. And that was something that a lot of people thought was crazy when I said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to write this. And, and I actually told the director of my program that I'm not going to write a, a paper that collects desks on somebody's desk. Uh, I'm going to create an organization that changes the world. Now, that sounds very brash and arrogant, but, you know, that was that was very real in my life at that time. Every time I tried to write that paper, there was just something in my gut that was like, you're not supposed to do this. And. So what ended up happening is I skipped scholarships to law school and I I moved across the country into a homeless shelter to serve and was there for six months serving and living there. Then I moved into the closet of a gym. I lived in the closet of a gym for, for nine months and started my organization there. And it was about, I think maybe right around the time I got out of the closet of the gym, but, but sometime, you know, in, in, in and around that year two mark of being in Los Angeles and I was actually asked to teach sports psychology at Pepperdine. And, you know, that was such a huge honor and such a really cool thing to me. And then uh, as we got closer to the process, they came in and they were like, you know, you have your master's, right? Mm. And I was like, well, so the thing is, uh, <laughs> and and they were like, well, you don't need it in sports psychology. You just need it in anything. Like if you just have your master's, then, then you can teach sports psychology for us. And I was like, yeah, I, I didn't write my thesis. And they were like, well, you know, sorry, we we need somebody that has a master's. And that was pretty hard for me at the time. Um, It was a lot harder on, you know, that my friends and family that had all told me, you know, you're going to regret this for the rest of your life. And 
But it's so funny looking back, I, I understand now how pivotal of a moment that was in my life because had I gotten that job teaching sports psychology at Pepperdine just to be myself, which comes across sometimes as a little arrogant, I don't think mental training in sports psychology would look the same as it looks today in our country. Because, uh, you know, what I've been able to do with chop wood, carry water and, and not having that safe, secure job, what it really forced me to do is it forced me to be a full-fledged entrepreneur. I didn't have a, a safety net. I didn't have a cushy job. I didn't have a cushy salary. I had to, to go out into the jungle and I could only eat what I killed. And, you know, based off of not getting that job, then all of a sudden, I mean, my levels of, of hustle and grind and grit and study uh, just exponentially increased. And it just kind of turned me into this, you know, entrepreneurial monster in terms of really taking sports psychology, mental training to the masses and not worrying about getting a job and having the safety and security of a job. And so I've looked back many times and I've been like, man, you know, had I had I gotten that job, had I written that master's thesis and, you know, became you know, a, a sports psychology teacher at, at Pepperdine, uh, my life would look radically different and trained to be clutch would not have the influence that uh, exists today. There's almost no chance I would have wrote Chop Wood, Carry Water. I probably wouldn't have written a, a single book. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have needed to. There just wouldn't have been the same level of, of need. And, and honestly, almost uh, at some levels, desperation that, you know, you're just out there, you know, just, just doing what you have to do to, to build and, and grow your organization. And had I written that master's thesis, had I gotten that job at Pepperdine, I think things would look radically different today. That's fascinating to hear. And let me tell you, man, I, I cannot see you as a professor of sports psychology. <laughs> I know I, the wild thing is I know you could do it. Of course, that's not the challenge. But as I know the way I know you, that that is not who you are. But tell me something. You mentioned something that really stands out to me. And I think a lot of people in a moment like that, when you made such a pivotal decision, they would operate from a place of of fear. You mentioned how much this was hard on your family and friends. Forget you, the time, yeah. money you invested in this, but people would op operate from a place of fear. One thing I've always observed and noticed about you, and you mentioned this word earlier, is, is some people would maybe say arrogant. I've seen you yeah. as super direct and confident. So when you were making this decision, even though you hadn't got to the place where you are today, how did you have that confidence uh, to, to lean into that moment uh, without even even maybe having the skills and the mindset you have today? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, I know that, that God has played a pivotal role in my life. And, you know, whenever I say I had a feeling in my gut, you know, I, I, I definitely believe that that was more of a whisper from the Holy Spirit. But, you know, I, I don't know, man. I know that I'm wired differently. I, I've been wired differently from a very young age and stuff that um, it, it's interesting. It's always been this way in sports as well, that like stuff that's really easy for me is incredibly hard for other people and stuff that's incredibly hard for other people or stuff that's incredibly hard for me is really easy for other people. And, you know, I, I think that self-awareness, you know, as, as our buddy Gary Vaynerchuk talks about all the time, you know, is so huge. And, and I, I recognize that I'm just wired different than a lot of people, you know, stuff that makes perfect sense to me, um, just doesn't make sense to other people. And so it's almost like it's not even a fear thing. It's just like, it's the only 
decision that makes sense. Like I didn't have to live in the closet of the gym. I could have, they offered me to live with a host family. But when I looked at those two options, it was like, there was no, there was no choice. It was like closet of the gym done. Like that's, that's easy. And, and I don't know why it it is that way, but so many of those decisions when I'm faced with them, they just make a lot of sense to me. And, and quite frankly, and this is why I think I am way more just wired uh, entrepreneurially, I need to either fly or I need to fall flat on the concrete and, and learn from that. But like, it's got to be on me. I want that responsibility. I want that, you know, whatever you want to call it, pressure. Um, I, I don't want the safety net. I, I, I don't want it on, on either side. I don't want a net saying how high I can get to. And I don't want a net saying how far I can fall. And so a lot of that stuff, I, I really, I really think it's just kind of the way that I've been uniquely wired. And then thankfully, you know, my, my mom worked really hard and my dad occasionally would work hard to kind of cultivate that inside of me. And, you know, I was definitely a very hard kid to raise because I've been like this for uh, quite some time, but, you know, I just, Always those decisions that seem hard to other people are really easy for me. And let's take on that a little bit deeper. You mentioned something earlier about being willing and choosing to live what, what you described as an untraditional life. Yeah. And as I'm thinking about this question, the way I want to frame it uh, is the traditional way of saying, what did you have to sacrifice to <laughs> live an untraditional life? But as I'm listening to you talk, I'm like, actually, I think I need to flip that around. And the question is, what do you gain from living an untraditional life. I'm even just thinking about, again, society. They hear about an esteemed university like Duke. Uh, Things I know about you that others may not know, like self-publishing. You making the choice to self-publish when you could easily have book deals with major publishers. So what do you have to gain by going the untraditional route? Well, it's just, it's again, it's, I think a lot of it comes down to the self-awareness of understanding how you operate best and when you operate best. And some people, they can't take that, that pressure of, you know, not knowing where the next check's coming from, not knowing where uh, income is coming from, or, you know, even playing a individual sport versus playing a team sport, you know, like there's some people that, that don't like that aspect as well. And so I think so much of it comes down to just those levels of, of self-awareness of understanding if I go the traditional route, then don't be mad whenever you run into all sorts of red tape. And when there's, you know, 10 or 12 uh, levels and layers of netting that your money has to go through before it, it touches you. But that's the that's the responsibility that comes when when you're out on on your own. And in the same way, if you're out on your own, you can't really complain when it, it, all the buck stops with you, the responsibilities on, on your shoulders. And so, yeah, man, I, I really think that, you know, is your willingness to sacrifice and how you use your 86,400 seconds every single day in direct proportion to the size of your dreams. And, you know, when I was living in the closet of the gym, I had a couple different you know, situations where people kind of came in very pointedly into my life and were like, yo, what do you do with all your time? And, you know, and I justify it and I tell them stuff, but man, that question just would beat around my head. What do you do with all your time? What do you do with all your time? And I knew that I had these big dreams, but when I looked really, really honestly at how I used my time, I realized it didn't come close to mapping to the size 
of my dreams. And so that was when I made some really hard choices to cut certain people, to cut Facebook, TV, chilling, and a lot of things out of my life because I realized that if I wanted to do what I wanted to do at the level that I wanted to do it at, without a sports psychology degree, without a master's, that I was going to have to literally become one of the best in the world. And the only person that had control over that was me. I didn't have control over whether I got speaking engagements or workshop opportunities or you know consulting contracts or individual mentorship clients. But I, I did have control over you know, honing my craft. I did have control over, you know, spending that time, you know, mastering my craft in the dark when, you know, nobody was paying attention and my dreams were so far away, they felt like fairy tales. I, I get frustrated with people that try and be entrepreneurs inside of corporate America and traditional organizations. And then they get so mad at their bosses or, you know, I was talking to a guy who'd been in the military and I'm like, yo, Go be an entrepreneur, man. Stop complaining. There's no excuses. Like if you want to not have authority, if you want to just be able to be this, you know, creative person that doesn't follow the system and and bucks the system, then that's called being an entrepreneur. And but that's that's hard. And you know, I can't tell you how many people I've had come to me and say, "Oh, Joshua, I want to do what you do." And I'm like, cool, the Dream Center still takes applications. <laughs> Nobody's never gone to the Dream Center to, to live and serve. Not one of those people that have come to me and said, I want to be the director of mental training for a major program like you are. You know, n- none of them have done it. Um, and so I've always asked myself um, after my dad got diagnosed with terminal cancer and, you know, having lost my, my baby brother to, to drowning in the pool whenever I was nine. Um, and so I've always asked myself, if I got diagnosed with terminal cancer, would it change anything about the way that I live? And about a year ago, you know, all of a sudden I was out on the road and I I said, man, I I wouldn't be out on the road. Like I wouldn't be speaking. And from that day forth, you know, I called Lucas, my business partner and, you know, brilliant protege and and said, uh, I'm going to cut about 99% of of work out of my life right now. I got to get back to a place where I feel, you know, like I'm living as if I had terminal cancer. And, you know, that doesn't mean that I won't, you know, won't do work anymore, or won't speak anymore, or won't write anymore ever again. But like until I get back to that point, life is precious, life is short, and I don't want to waste it. You know, one of my favorite quotes is from a guy named Francis Chan who said, you know, our greatest fear should not be of failure. Our greatest fear should be of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. And uh, I, I want to I make sure that I'm wrestling with those things in, in really healthy ways and not just operating out of fear, like you said, and going, well, what if I, what if, what if book sales dry up or what if speaking engagements dry up or all this stuff that people have kind of tried to, to throw at me out of that fear and scarcity. And I'm like, man, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't start off on this journey worried about that type of stuff because I've become the type of person that knows how to build, create, add value, experiment with real world solutions. You throw me in a different country where I don't even speak the language and with nothing. And seven years from now, I would probably be in a similar position because it's not about what you have. It's about who you are and the character that you have and the skill set that you have and the mindset that you have and the way that you approach, you know, these problems in, in life. And once again, we're just living through such a unique time in, in space where the tools are all at our fingertips, where all the excuses have been taken off the table. There's so much to unpack there. And, you know, a consistent theme that's coming up is the word excuses. 
And what's coming through as I'm listening to you talk is that you don't you're still not using that as an excuse. I'm I'm not I'm, I'm not hearing you say anything about ever being a victim. And that mindset does not exist for you. Is that fair to say? Or is that something you, you, you've cultivated? Um, no, that's that's definitely been cultivated. I mean, that was, I would say, for the first at least 25 years of my life, if not, you know, definitely 22, I, I, I had nothing but a victim mindset. And that is, you know, that's been a, a, a journey that I still battle. But I think even more than that, the, the, the battle from a mindset perspective that I have is, you know, from that fixed mindset to a growth mindset and believing, you know, with that fixed mindset that you either have it or you don't, that, you know, everything is a test and you're just constantly out there trying to prove yourself versus that growth mindset of believing anything that happens to me today is in my best interest and an opportunity to learn and grow. And, and this is probably a good, good story to, to, to wrap it on, but I'll tell you about one of probably the most pivotal moment in my business, in my life, in my career was actually six years ago, six years ago. And uh, now I live in San Diego, but I had traveled from Los Angeles to San Diego for, for New Year's to celebrate with some of my friends. And I ended up getting knocked out in San Diego, got into three multiple, three physical altercations uh, that weekend, the last of which I got knocked out and, you know, like I could go into the to the full story and the guy had said some very derogatory racial slurs towards my buddies. And, you know, I was uh, the one that stepped in and, you know, said something. And but I ended up getting knocked out and and I was so frustrated with myself and felt like I was a fake and a fraud and a phony. And then it, it hit me, though. It was like, you know, you talk to people about having a growth mindset and believing that anything that happens to you is in your best interest and an opportunity for you to learn and grow. Here you go. Like here is that served up on a platter for you. And, you know, the truth is that, you know, how do you stop somebody that can get knocked out by somebody 6'4", 240 pounds and believe that it's in their best interest and an opportunity to learn and grow? And then what was so crazy about that experience was the fact that, when I actually started sharing that story of getting knocked out, it became, it's a story that I close every speaking engagement with now because there's something about, you know, as you said, I do come across as very confident, arrogant, brash, you know, naive, whatever you want to call it. But whenever I started opening up and sharing from that place of vulnerability that it's like, look, I'm going to own it all. I'm going to own the successes and uh, accomplishments that I've had. I'm going to own the the character and really hard choices and sacrifices that I've made. But I'm also going to own the, the shit. And I'm going to own when I've gotten knocked out. I'm going to own whenever I've made poor choices. I'm going to own that I still, as Chop Wood went viral, and I've made more money than I ever dreamed of and more opportunities than I ever dreamed of. I've struggled so much more with suicidal ideation. I've struggled so much more with manic depression and, and other stuff that um, I'm going to own all of that. But it was so crazy because I was so afraid of sharing that story. And literally, I'll never forget, I was I was at, at Jamie and Amy's father-in-law's house in, in Colorado, in Denver. And I was sitting in the guest bed and I was talking with my only client who was a professional soccer player in Germany. And when I told him the story about getting knocked out, he literally goes, man, I'm so glad that you told me that. I feel so much better. Like, 
I, you know, I'm sorry you got knocked out, but, um, I now know that you're a human being. And he's like, so much of this stuff that you've, you shared with me, you, you come across as like a robot almost. And the fact that like you shared this with me, now I know that you're just like me. And, and it's, it's so funny because sometimes, you know, we, we carry around these shields and these guards and we're like, ah, we got to look a certain way. We got to make sure our packaging is really good. But man, let me tell you, when you can own it all and still operate from that place of confidence, but really show up with with real humility and a willingness to talk about the really hard stuff, the failures, the shortcomings, the challenges in your life um, and have that authentic vulnerability, man, that that has connected me with people and and really, I would say, blew up our, our business and our brand more than anything else. Whenever I was willing to let my guard down and be like, yes, I've got some, some great stuff that I bring to tape to the table, but man, I've also got some really hard and and really messed up stuff that I've got as well. There's, I appreciate you sharing all of that. And there's so many parallels, what you talked about earlier to living that untraditional life and, and not having a safety net and making some really tough decisions that others would find excuses not to make. And man, even that willingness to step into a situation when potentially just by looks of it, you're overmatched with a big dude, that willingness to get knocked out says something in itself, meaning you're doing it for the right reasons. I'm going to support, I'm going to back up, have my friends back. And, and that says so much. And just briefly, let's dig in on this. And I have just a few more questions for you, but you talked a bit about ownership and, you know, working in the leadership and development space where, where I travel all across the country, like you do, giving keynotes and, and talks. And with a lot of the talks that I see that people give, and I can't front the talks that I give specifically in the past, there's a, there's a veneer of the guy on the stage, the best version of this person, yep. this man or woman that can make you laugh, do all these different things. You and I had a moment a few years back at a conference in Los Angeles <laughs> And you said something that that will stick with me all the time and always get it wrong. But thank goodness you correct me on social media. But you said as a speaker, I'm not here to make you laugh. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I think people, if they read your books, I mean, I think your books have the gift of being direct and to the point, which probably frustrates some people (laughs) that your books are so direct, succinct and to the point. Yet when people see you speak, if they're expecting a a rah, rah, let's go walk on some you know, coals that are on fire, which, Hey, if that's your thing, that's no problem. They're in for something else. Is that correct? Well, I, y- yes, they, they are. I, but I, I again, I, I just think it's, it's so much of that, that self-awareness piece of like, and and that's, that's what I had, you know, when we were sitting there with, with, with John Gordon and Irwin at that dinner. And, and you said that, and like, I'll never forget that. And I was like, man, I, I, I'm not here to make people laugh. Like, that's not, that's not my thing. That's not what I'm good at. I, if I try and make people laugh, then I'm going to, I'm going to be trying to be somebody else. What I'm really, really good at is, is stepping up and sharing the truth in a way that is very, very poignant. It is very direct. And it's typically in a way that people have not heard it. And that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. I would actually say that my books, it's funny. And it's a, it's a challenge for me personally, because it's just, it's hard emotionally to handle, but people love my books. I mean, the amount of people that tell me that they don't like my books is, is one in in a thousand. The amount of people that tell me that they don't like me is one in two people either love me or they hate me. 
and I drive people crazy. I, I even had a guy one time um, we had done, uh, Lucas and I were at this school that I love in, in Dallas and and I had told the, the, the teachers a lot of really hard stuff about education that not only that I stand by, but I'm one of the people that's in the trenches that's trying to, to change the system and is giving them tools and things to make it better. Um, but I'm also going to call them on their bullshit and tell them that I think that for the most part, higher education is one of the biggest pyramid schemes in the world. And that a lot of kids should not be going through that and trying to fit kids into a cookie cutter system um, is not okay. And I get very, very defensive about kids because, um, you know, if it wasn't for the grace of God, I wouldn't have made it out of the system. The system tried to change me and I didn't need to be changed. I needed to be cultivated and somebody be like, man, you don't fit here. We need you over here. We don't need you to be a traditional worker. We need you to take the way you see the world and your energy and your stubbornness. And we need to direct this in ways that can literally change the world and not have people tell me all the time, you're wrong, you're bad, you're this, you're that. Like, And so I take that very personally and I come at them very, very hard and I do not apologize. So much so that, um, you know, Lucas, when he, whenever he was there, they, you know, when they got him alone, they were like, you know, does Joshua realize that this doesn't work without you? And, you know, he had a, he had a funny response that kind of uh, stopped them in their tracks on that. But like, but, but at that school, this teacher came up to me and he was the drama teacher. And he said, so man, I got to ask you, he's like, you don't seem to be the same person that's represented in your books. And he said, so as a drama teacher, he said, I, I have to ask you, are you playing a character whenever you get up on stage, when you come and you do these talks to just elicit these feelings out of people and really stir things up. He said, cause I don't get that sense in your books. You know, everybody loves your books, but whenever you come, they have a really hard time and are really offended half the teachers by you. And I said, you know, it's actually funny that you say that. Um, and as I, as I thought about it for a few minutes, I said, no, man, I said, it's actually the opposite. Me, on stage and, and what you get is the most authentic version of me. What you see in my books, that's where the uh, that's where I'm playing a character. And you know, those are way more commercially viable um, products in 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 kind of you know that veneer that you were talking about on stage. That comes out in my books. When you get me on on stage and live in front of people, um, you get 100% me. I'm going to shoot from the hip. I, I speak from the heart and uh, even last night we had a golf tournament and, and the guy that I call my my grandpa at the country club, he was like, look, man, when Joshua says something, it 100% comes from his heart. Whether you like it or whether you don't, that's where it comes from and he ain't ever going to change. And that is, that's kind of the, the, the way that it is. And so again, it's just that self-awareness though of understanding that Occasionally, I make people laugh, but it's always unintentionally. I'm not trying to make them laugh. My job is not to, to, to make people laugh. There are people that are incredible at telling jokes and getting people to laugh and making people feel loose. There's a part of me that like I like making people feel uncomfortable because I think that that's where people... I mean, we'll put it this way. People are going to talk about me long after I leave a room. 
It could be good or it could be bad, but I will make them so uncomfortable that they are going to have to talk about it. They are going to have to wrestle with thoughts and ideas that they have never thought about. And sometimes that means going into uh, spaces that are completely white. And during you know the 2016 presidential election and what was going on with the, the football situation and Colin Kaepernick and on stage crying and talking to people in a corporate setting about Jesus and how Jesus was in the dirt with the hurting and the broken. He was literally kneeling in the, in the dirt. And so if we ever question where we're supposed to be in those moments, we should be kneeling with people that are hurting and broken and, and bringing light to situations where if you look at me on the surface, you're like, oh, there's this white privileged kid. Um, but I'm going to come into those spaces and I'm going to come out with not just guns blazing. I'm going to come in with a with a flamethrower because of how passionate I am about situations that that have to do with with people that have been disenfranchised and in in a, in a lot of really messed up stuff and people that you know that I'm in the trenches with every single day. And so it doesn't really matter what the situation is. Like I said, education or going into baseball and, and going into professional baseball teams and telling them that the entire way that they train is counterintuitive to peak performance. It's just what I do. I'm going to make people really uncomfortable and I'm going to make them have to think way harder than they've ever wanted to think about stuff that they've always taken for granted. Man. I think the friction, and it's really clear for me right now in this conversation, the friction that you create, the polarity that you create, whether it's within society. It's always fun to watch some of your exchanges on social media, by the way. Some of the re- <laughs> and so every, now and then, every now and then you'll post uh, one of those one-star review, those rare one-star reviews from Amazon yeah. that are hilarious. And I love to share those. But the friction, the polarity you create with society with, say, the education system and with that man or woman who you're telling they have every tool to walk away and create they want what they want to create. That friction is because Joshua Metcalf is willing to stand for something, which I see so many are, are unwilling to do. And I'll speak for myself for many times. You'd see me on stage and I would say a lot, but you would not know where I stood on something, whether it be politics or societal issues or whatever. I, but as I've develop confidence confidence and the grit i'm willing to stand for something even if that means it's going to create some some friction so i I applaud you for being willing to stand for something even uh when it's uncomfortable no i appreciate it you know i have i have so much stuff that i struggle with so many issues and challenges that are really big and that if you know if i had that that microscope on my life with cameras around me all the time it wouldn't be pretty but you know i don't even know if it's as much that i'm willing to stand for something as that it's just that i'm willing to fight for stuff and you know i'm willing to fight as a really flawed human being that um, that makes mistakes and, and has very serious challenges and addictions and stuff that i you know am, am fighting and, and working through every single day but but yes like when it when when the rubber meets the road, I'm going to fight for what I believe in. And, um, and I wish that more people would do that. We don't even have to be willing to die anymore. Most of the time, you just have to be willing to get fired from your job. But what's sad to me is we've become a society that operates so much out of fear and scarcity when there's more opportunity than ever existed. And we are so operating out of fear and scarcity, we're not even willing to get fired. And I, I, and I just, that is hard for me to handle. But like, even the people that tell me, uh, well, I've got a kids, I've got a mortgage, I've got this. I'm like, 
what better example could you ever set for your kids than you being willing to get fired for what you really believe in? That's going to hit a lot of people really, really heavy. And, and you're, you're the rare dude that I can say I'm willing to fight for something. And I got knocked out, son, to yeah. show you, yeah, that, like, which, which, is, which is real. Right? <laughs> you know, well, what if Martin Luther King Jr. would have stopped fighting because of his mistresses and affairs? You know what I mean? Like, what if he would have just been like, you know what? I'm not worthy of, of this fight. <laughs> You know, the FBI, the FBI knows everything that I'm doing. They're coming at me. What if, what if he would have stopped? Like, instead of like, no, I know that I'm a flawed human being, but it's still worth fighting to make this world a better place. And, you know, and again, in the, in those people's cases, they were willing to die to move our world forward. And I just hope that if there's anything that I can do, it's inspire people to, you know, to not walk on coals, but to actually be willing to be fired for what they believe in. Because the funny part is that when you get past that initial fear and scarcity and the the stuff that everybody's worried about, like, oh, you missed the job at, at Pepperdine. Well, guess what? Something so much greater was on the other end of that. I think that that if you're willing and you actually, the beautiful thing is if you would actually get fired for what you believe in, then that becomes your resume. That becomes what you have. This has been amazing. I want to end with one last question. And I think you've touched on this throughout our interview, but I think it's really important to hit on. And at the top of our call, you mentioned one of the best things that ever happened to you is not finishing the master's thesis at, at Duke University. And something you mentioned that was interesting is that how much this hurt some people who were close to you. Yeah. Uh, that surprised some people that were close to you. Right now, there's someone that's listening to this. And as you know, Joshua, there's something they do not want to quit. They, they do not want to continue. There is a pivot they want to make. There is a change they want to make. And they may have the skill set, et cetera, to make it happen. Yet their biggest fear is how this is going to affect others, particularly loved ones. What do you say to that person who, who's wrestling with how their changes as a person, their growth, et cetera, uh, how that's going to affect others and how to move forward through that? Well, you know, one thing I've realized in the last eight months, one of my best friends came in and said, hey, I want you to take this test. And I was like, sure. And that that test was, you know, the autism spectrum test. And I took it twice. And both times, you know, snuck onto the, the, the spectrum. And so I, I definitely think that there's, again, a, a part of the way that I, I, I'm wired where I'm not as worried about social norms as as other people, but you know what I can say on this point is that social shame is one of the biggest factors in people not living the life that they're supposed to live that they know in their gut that they're supposed to live. The social shame that people experience from those that really really do love them and care about them. Again, though, I think the more that you look at it and you look around and you find other stories of people and what they've been through, you realize that that's the same for everybody. The social shame is very real and understanding like, look, um, I, I know that this is, you know, maybe going to disappoint some people short term, but man, I think what, what matters a lot more is on your deathbed, you want to look back and be like, I wish I would have lived the life that I was supposed to live. I wish I would have quit my job and actually done the thing that I was supposed to do. I wish that I would have been willing to sacrifice some, you know, Friday and Saturday nights or some TV or some video games 
or whatever it was to build my side hustle to the point where I then would feel more comfortable quitting my job. But most people aren't willing to put their money where their mouth is and and go and do it. They want everybody else to believe in them more than they believe in themselves. They want everybody else to take them seriously, but they don't take themselves seriously. And what I found is that when you start to take yourself seriously, people come out of the woodwork to help you. The real issue 99.9% of the time is you don't take yourself seriously. Man, listen, you have set my ears on fire. I'm sure everyone listening right now, they're, they're set on fire as well. I appreciate everything you've shared over the course of this interview. And I will never forget back in the early days of your journey when we met for the very first time in Santa Monica. You're the first person I ever met with for the first time who gave me a packet of information. <laughs> You're like, yo, here, this is what I've been working on, what I've been training with. And I, and I still have that packet. So I have so much appreciation, admiration, love and respect for you, man. And not to uh, interrupt you, but but it's I'm really glad you brought that up. Because back, I was living with my mom back then, and I had very, very little to offer people. But I know that I asked you the same question I asked everybody else. I said, what is your dream, and how can I help? And all I tried to do was provide value. And I remember that packet that I gave you because I was like, man, I'm going to try and share something. I'm going to try and add value to his life. I'm not going to ask for anything. I'm just going to try and add value to his life. And so many people are out there asking for help. They're asking for, you know, for, well, oh, could you give me money for this? Oh, could you put me on? Oh, can you give me a shout out? Oh, could you, could you do this for me? And no, man, it's, it's how can you add value to other people's lives? And if you will just consistently try and add value everywhere that you can, it's amazing how, how how things change because you you are one of the few people that's gotten to watch that journey of me going from living with my mom to you know to the place where I'm at now and um and and I don't think that's the end all be all but when you start shifting from what you can get to trying to add value everywhere you go it's powerful man absolutely yeah and I, I Man, the value you've added in my life on so many different levels from your books to watching your videos and beyond. Uh, I'm appreciative of it. Just briefly for those folks who want to, were fired up, want to find you online, where do you like to send them directly to? I'm not, I'm not worried if you just type in my name in Google or in, in almost every platform or bookstores or whatever, you're going to find something that I've done. So, and you know, the people that, that want to find you, they'll, they'll, they'll find you. So that's it, man. Well, I'm glad I found you. (laughs) Thanks for making time again, man. I really appreciate this. Absolutely, buddy. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for listening to The Best Thing Podcast with Antonio Neves. Join us next week for more stories that'll help you see the world through a new lens. For more resources, go to theantonioneves.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share with a friend and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.